1: Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a podcast, cha- a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkharan. More than you'll ever need to know about me at rajbalkharan.com. More importantly, today I get to speak with independent scholar Dr. Gitanjali Srikantan about uh, a fascinating new 2020 Cambridge University Press publication, Identifying and Regulating Religion in India. Uh, the subtitle of the book is "Law, History, and the Place of Worship." Uh, very apropos uh, our podcast themes here. Uh, Gitanjali, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So maybe let's let's uh, as you may have gathered, <laughs> my job is to ask ridiculous, naive questions that perhaps might prompt some discussion and and might think alongside a generalist uh, listenership. But let me ask this question. What is the core problem or issue? What is the phenomenon or problem that the book seeks to address?
0: Uh, The main problem is that religion can't be defined in law and uh, Indian judiciary has spent a lot of time trying to figure this out. And this forms a huge problem because they have come up with something called the essential practices test, which um, does not have a clear methodology and um, uh, overall they come out with contradictory decisions uh, regarding how they define religion. That's the core problem which I'm trying to investigate. And I investigated through the place of worship because places of worship are being highly contested these days in India and the question of religion and how one defines religion, religious freedom becomes most uh,
1: important this is a most fascinating line of inquiry um as anyone who's ever taken a religious studies class may be well aware um, uh, that, um religion is is an evasive category uh through this holiday lens anyhow and this is a problem this is a problem for religious studies this is a problem for various theorists um but when this problem intersects with uh, <laughs> with uh With legal codes and and enforcement thereof upon people, this problem becomes less of a pedantic one and more of a very practical one with real-life repercussions. Could you share some of, could you disentangle this a bit for us? Like, why is it so problematic to define religion in this context? And why is it so crucial for there to be a definition of religion?
0: Just to very briefly answer this question, it's a complex problem which has to be disentangled. One is that there is a colonial understanding of religion and uh, judges do not have any understanding of how um, religion is a self-referential entity. And um, very often they have a textual understanding of religion. They look for texts. And they try to find them and which they do not uh, uh, succeed in doing it. And um, they refer to other kinds of uh, materials such as uh, 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 history or anecdotal evidence in order to come out with uh, an understanding of religion. So um, this is the main problem because in many ways also they have to be theologians. They have to go into texts. Uh, Into religious texts and decide, and they do not have any kind of understanding of religion uh, to be able to do that.
1: Could you give us an example of some of the sorts of decisions that are implicated in the idea of religion?
0: Well, there is one very important case called the Anad Marga case, which was a procession by certain people uh, in uh, the uh, region of Bengal where uh, they used knives and uh, certain other kinds of sharp implements and the police said that this is harmful and uh, we cannot allow you to take out uh, such a procession based on your claim to religious freedom. So it went to a number of courts and what um, the decision was, uh, was that this is not uh, a case of, um, of religious freedom because uh, there was no text by the Anand Marga uh, founder. And uh, because of this, uh, the, they were denied the right to take out processions as an exercise in religious freedom. So um, eventually um, there was a series of texts that uh, were compiled. And when they went back to the courts again, the courts agreed that Um, one could take out this position because there was textual evidence. There was also another case regarding uh, cow slaughter, where uh, it was held that uh, cow slaughter is not uh, something uh, that is mentioned uh, uh, in the Quran, the courts relied on textual evidence. They uh, went into the Quran for this, and uh, in the case of um, trying to determine whether Uh, a Muslim uh, person can grow beards, they said many Muslim dignitaries can have beards, and thus um, um, the evidence is very anecdotal. There's no kind of consistent methodology.
1: Could you maybe flesh out why reliance on text or looking to textual evidence might be problematic in some situations?
0: Um, The reliance on textual evidence is basically because we are following uh, a conception from the Abrahamic religions, And um, we seem to look for um, texts because they contain the doctrines of religion, and it's the search for doctrines, by codes, which make um, the uh, decision to um, decision making regarding uh, religious freedom so difficult.
1: So, now that we've set the scene, um, what does your book posit or argue? What is the central thrust of your book?
0: Well, um, what the book tries to do is look at how the category of religion has come into place and um, in law. So, it traces an intellectual uh, history of the category of religion in respect to the place of worship and uh, what. Uh, I try to do is uh, show uh, how these categories have been formed, particularly Hindu law and Islamic law, and what are the key concepts, such as um, um, the the secular concept of charity, um, the idea of God, uh, authority, uh, the public and the private, and um, how places of worship, and how we think of places of worship as Hindu or Islamic are, are fashioned? And why do we actually even think of these places as places of worship?
1: So, over the course of this argument, what sorts of data are you looking at?
0: Well, I look at court judgments and um, also material in archives, colonial histories uh, in archives, uh, such as uh, legislative debates, the works of colonial administrators. And um, in looking at one particular uh, key case, which is known as Swami Narayan case, uh, where the definition of Hinduism uh, became uh, very, very central, I looked at the original records uh, of at the Supreme Court uh, and to see what evidence the Supreme Court used in order to make uh, the decision.
1: Perhaps you could tell us a bit about how the book is structured.
0: Well, what I do is begin by uh, looking at uh, the problem of religious freedom as such and um, and uh, try to see why uh, courts have, have uh, such great difficulties. I define uh, the nature of the problem, after which I look at how Hindu law, for instance, has been formed and how Islamic law has also been formed, what are the principles behind it and what are the legal histories behind it. Um, And in looking at that, I move on to the place of worship and try to understand how the place of worship is structured, what are the kinds of concepts which go into it, such as uh, the the idea of charity and... uh, Also, um, the themes of God, authority, the juristic status of the idol, uh, the question of dedication. And I finally show in the contemporary context that the definition of religion and law really has uh, no meaning as such. It is impossible to define religion and law, as we can see in the Shastriya Kampurashita's case, where many of the litigants came out with, uh, uh, with all kinds of evidence which the Supreme Court did not take into account, there's a mismatch between the evidence and the actual decision.
1: What might be the path forward then? What do we do with this problematic term of religion?
0: Well, what we can do is uh, look, uh, for instance, at how this framework is conceptually flawed and uh, have a different kind of framework in order to understand um, the uh, practices and traditions. For instance, having an all-encompassing definition of, uh, of, uh, of, re- of religion as being focused on text, instead of uh, instead of practice, or not interrogating the, the practices themselves as representing individual religions, uh, as individual traditions, um, is something that uh, we can do. Just one second. Uh, can you stop recording one minute? So, uh, the the question is that one has to interrogate um, practices of a tradition and not merely try to encompass it into a larger uh, religion with texts and uh, the idea of a founder and uh, the idea of doctrines itself.
1: You've touched on an idea a couple of times that I think we might want to unpack, the idea of the legal status of the murti. Right, yeah. Could you say a bit more about this? Why would that matter?
0: Uh, the legal status of the idol um, matters because um, uh, the, the question is how do we really define a place of worship? And what has happened over the uh, hundred years of legal history is that uh, the idol or image based worship has started to assume um, a great deal of importance within British colonial history, they have uh, kind of ignored a number of other practices. What I do, for instance, is that um, I look at how there's no place of worship in the 19th century and places of worship were categorized by their function. Uh, There was no Hindu endowment and there was no Islamic endowment, but um, you had different categories like the Musafi Khanam or the graveyard or the mosque or the Dargah. And what happens in this intervening period is that um, a number of legal concepts come into being, such as juristic status, the idea of dedication, et cetera. Now, the notion or conception of um, uh, the ideal becomes very important because uh, the British want to know what is God within Hinduism. And it's very central to defining Hinduism as a religion and as a Hindu place of worship. So so that becomes very important for the British and uh, the result of which they give juristic status to the idol. There's an entire theological rationality behind it because they see the idol as representative of God, which is not how uh, worshippers or Hindus, normal Hindus would see it. And um, they see the act of Hindus having darshan as as worship. And uh, the the question of worship is is also very different uh, because worship in a Christian context means a worshiping God who's the creator of the universe. The idol cannot be the creator of the universe. So um, the, the idol is very central to their own conception of Hinduism and uh, they need a custodian to act for it, which is why they see the idol as having this property but not being able to act, but having a, a, a custodian or a shabait or uh, a dharmakarta, um, multiple authorities who act for it and manage the property.
1: Fascinating. I'm gonna ask you a question that I normally ask at the outset, but I thought it important to set the stage first. How did you become interested in this? What prompted you to pursue this path of research?
0: Well, um, when I was working uh, in a human rights NGO many uh, years ago, I was was involved in giving advice on a litigation uh, in relation to uh, a space called um, uh, the Baba Budangari Dargah. And um, this was um, a place of worship frequented by both Hindus and Muslims, and in the 70s, uh, it um, uh, became the target of a takeover by the Board, who claimed that this is a Muslim endowment and we want to take it over. However, the Hindu devotees objected and said, no, um, we worship uh, at this um, particular space and uh, it's not correct that it be declared a Muslim place of worship. So uh, what happened is that the court said that this place of worship is not Hindu or Muslim. It's beyond that and the Hindu devotees had a right to worship at that uh, place. So later on in the 80s, uh, Hindu right-wing groups tried to um, take over this place saying it's a Hindu place of worship and that uh, there's no really, there's no saint there, but uh, instead this is the seat of a deity called Dathatreya. And therefore Hindus should be allowed to worship there and uh, Vedic pujas should be performed over there. So, um, uh, this litigation incidentally is still going on and have been many kinds of developments including um, a particular time in the year where uh, the Hindu right-wing groups, right groups are allowed into this particular daga and they have Vedic pujas and there's a continuous kind of attempt to convert this particular shrine. So uh, the question that was very central to this litigation is what is really religion? And what is really religious freedom? So do these Hindu groups have the right to perform these Vedic pujas? And how do we understand uh, these practices at the Dargah, which has some Hindu religious objects and also uh, the grave of uh, a Muslim saint? Uh, how, How do we actually understand this? And how can we understand the exercise of religious freedom in this regard? Because it does not fall under a normative conception of worship in an Islamic context.
1: What sorts of readers might most benefit from this book, whether subfields, specialists, generalists, you know who, who would most, um, who would get the most out of this book?
0: Uh, anybody who's really interested in questions of how we look at places of worship today and uh, the kinds of uh, developments that are happening where uh, uh, there are so many attempts to change. Uh, places of worship—it's um, all over the newspapers right now with the Gyanbapi Mosque, and as well um, as uh, the mos- uh, mosque in Madura. So, uh, people who are interested in this kind of topic would benefit from uh, reading my book to understand these litigations better and how uh, various kinds of litigants come forward and make claims. So, um, th- this this would benefit them because I. Uh, I analyze uh, uh, the main legal concepts behind these kinds of claims. Um, Lawyers uh, would also benefit um, in in understanding the origins of how religious law uh, has been formed in in India, uh, the origins of Hindu and uh, Islamic law uh, in a modern context as well as students law who uh, are studying modern Hindu family law and modern Islamic family law in, in their classrooms.
1: Yeah. Is this work that you plan on continuing? Is this re- this research? Is it something you'd like to continue?
0: Well, I don't actually plan to continue uh, this this uh, research um, as such. Um, uh, um, but um, perhaps uh, try to apply it more in the context of current developments um, uh, as as such. Uh, since this topic is really controversial, uh, i I don't really work on it uh, much more, but uh, I'm interested in seeing how this uh, is applied uh, to current developments. And I believe that my work is a useful guide to um, many controversies around places of worship today.
1: If you could offer a bit of conjecture, how might this research potentially be applied?
0: Well, um, there are many ways in which you can apply this, uh, this research in the context of understanding the motivations of parties that uh, come forward and what are the openings within the law to allow them to come forward. For instance, uh, the entire way in which uh, the debates on uh, places of worship unfold or the kinds of claims that are made, um, there is this conceptualization that a Hindu place of worship is a public place of worship and any Hindu can come forward and make this claim. So um, many uh, parties, uh, uh, Hindu right-wing parties, um, any ordinary um, uh, individual who considers himself self Hindu can come forward. So uh, what my uh, book does, it shows that this was not always there. And when um, religious endowments were debated in legislative assemblies, people raised concerns about the fact that this definition of Hindu uh, was uh, problematic that anybody could come forward and say that they could worship in a temple. And some, in fact, there is uh, a comment that somebody from Peshawar can come and make a claim in, in the Malabar. So, and anybody who's just, um, dis- uh, uh, who's just dissatisfied with the affairs of the temple can raise raise a certain claim on the affairs of the temple, uh, the fact that it's not managed or the fact that uh, he, or or she did not have the right to worship in a particular manner. So I think the normative category of the public to make a claim that they are Hindu and the fact that image-based worship or uh, the idol was so central to British conceptions of a Hindu place of worship is something that's been um, inherited, which is what many of these Hindu writing parties follow, they claim that that is a Hindu religious object and therefore uh, they have the right to worship. So these two categories of the public and the idea of the idol and its importance in the last hundred years, uh, which has come about through judicial discourse, is very relevant in understanding developments today.
1: Is there anything else about the book that you'd like to touch on before we close for today?
0: Uh, well, um, I think we've covered a lot, so I don't think I have much to say. And uh, uh, I hope that people can read this book to reflect more on uh, current questions today and uh, also reflect on the manner and the way in which we understand places of worship and also be more critical of the legal concepts that we are using in uh, relation to uh, to, uh, to places of worship. Uh, there is uh, a trend today uh, in uh, trying to understand uh, litigation on places of worship through these legal concepts and saying that um, this particular litigation uh, has not been carried out properly because courts have um, given out these decisions uh, which are based on an inadequate understanding of uh, the law. But what I argue is that a legal framework is flawed and it's important to think of a new legal framework in the context of places of worship.
1: Fascinating. Thank you for appearing on the podcast today.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, It's wonderful to be here.
1: For those listening, uh, we have been speaking with Dr. Gitanjali Shrikantan on her uh, brand new Cambridge University Press publication, Identifying and Regulating Religion in India. Until next time, keep well, keep listening and keep contemplating the interplay between religion and law. Take care.